RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's Monday, which means health hacks with Dr. Glenn Davies of reversalnz.co.nz. Hello again, Glenn. Hey, Paul, how are you? Lovely to see and hear you again. Same. Thank you so much. And boy, the last couple of uh, shows have really engaged a, a lot of people. We've had a lot of feedback. And uh, that last program where, where you went through um, a lot of the uh, correspondence, much appreciated by people. So this is an interesting one. Um, whew, what do we call it? Um, <laughs> diet control, yeah. losing weight, overweight, underweight. How do you want to describe this one? The sort of um, weight management, weight, weight control. Management. Yeah. Hmm. And how do we how do we launch out on this? Because it's a sensitive subject. And, yeah. and and I can relate to it because I have been in an earlier life, probably some would say, well, certainly overweight. I don't know about obese, but certainly overweight. So I know what it's like to be overweight and quite big and, and possibly even by my own definition now, kind of fat. But that, that was 30 kgs ago and 10 years ago. So I understand the sensitivity. So how do we frame this chat? Yeah, so we've we've been a little bit um, reluctant to discuss this topic, haven't we, Paul? Um, and it's it's because there's a lot of emotion associated with it, and particularly this issue of fat shaming. You know, so what that means is that people will look at someone who is overweight and they will make assumptions about them, which are very often incorrect assumptions. Um, you know, so somebody might look at someone else who's overweight and assume that because they're overweight, they are, are unhealthy or they're inactive. And that assumption is often very wrong, even to the point where some people who are skinny may have worse fat-related metabolic health issues than somebody who is overweight. And it really depends on where you carry your weight. So if you're carrying your weight under your skin, uh, you know, over over the majority of your of your body, particularly the you know hips and and thighs and buttocks, you can be extremely well. In comparison, you can be a man who's quite skinny but carrying all of that fat around your visceral organs. That's referred to as toffee thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Right. And that fat may be having a worse metabolic impact on that person than the person who's, um, in fact, by definition, overweight. So I guess the first point we want to make is, um, you know, be very careful about making judgments based on somebody's appearance or weight because you could be completely wrong with those assumptions. And I can tell you from from quite vast experience that people are, who are overweight are neither lazy um, or inactive, you know, and in many cases, they're the ones who are at the gym, they're the ones that are out um, pounding the streets. So, you know, I just really want to begin this discussion by saying don't make assumptions about people based on their weight because you will inevitably uh, be wrong with those assumptions. In fact, never make assumptions. What's that saying? Um Something about uh, makes a fool out of you and I. Yeah, no, you're right there. Though it's interesting, isn't it, the psychology behind it? Um, do you think it's a cultural phenomenon, fat shaming, or to have a a sort of dim view of fat, even though 
as you just pointed out, I mean, it, you, you can't make a, a judgment at that level because uh, there's a lot more detail. Or is it something in, I don't know, it, an evolutionary thing? What do you think? How, how are those attitudes to weight form, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a very good question. Um, you might let, have to let me ponder that one a, a little bit. Um, I, all I could probably say at this stage is that a lot of these assumptions are a hundred percent incorrect. Um, but I'll I'll I might have an answer a little bit later in the show. I'll ponder that one. It's probably advertising if it's incorrect. It's probably due to advert some sort of form of advertising <laughs> or marketing over the years. Yeah, yeah, let, yeah. Let me think about that one. Okay, we'll come back on that one. Okay, so where do we start um, here? If if being overweight is not necessarily unhealthy, really, should people worry about that at all? Then it's like you say, it's it's where the fat is, right? Yeah. So you you need a little bit more data before worrying whether you're you're carrying your fat in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. Uh, we have these really clever scales um, which tell us how much visceral fat there is. And um, when I was learning how to use them, uh, probably quite a few of the nurses in the practice, I had to persuade them to stand on it because they were going, no, 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 I don't want to stand on it. And it turned out that although some of them were feeling that they were heavier than they should be, without exception, their visceral fat was wonderfully low. However, um, most of the guys in the practice were quite happy to jump on them, yet quite a number of, the, of them had high visceral fat. So it's really making that point around, you know, you need a bit more data. Measuring your waist circumference is a very good one. You know, so if you're a guy and your waist circumference is less than 100, uh, the likelihood is that your visceral fat will be fine. And if you're a, a woman and it's less than 90, Again, it's likely your visceral fat will be low. So that's the the tape measure around the umbilicus, around the centre of the abdomen's a good screening test. So you know, do do that one. But a lot of women, particularly, will carry the weight um, around the hips and buttocks, and that's generally a healthy way to to carry to carry weight in in the subcutaneous fat. Is that like a um? Is that the way the body is designed to accommodate it? Yeah, it is. You know, we go back to that that evolutionary biology uh, view, the caveman view, and the cavemen didn't have fridges. So the way, the method they used of storing um, fuel or storing food for later was to store it as fat in times of plenty so that it could be utilised as fuel uh, in times of shortage. You know, and, and we now have refrigerators uh, for that task, but um, that ability to store fat in that way would not have been health, unhealthy for the caveman. Uh, it just would have been the fridge. And there are some um, ethnicities that are more prone to that, aren't there? Yeah, I, I, th I think um, I think that is generally um, generally true. Yeah, some I think some people are better, are more adept at storing fat than, than others. And from a um, survival point of view, that was an advantage. Yeah, it would be. How do those scales work? I'm just curious. How, how do you know, how, how can you differentiate between different types of fat on a scale? 
Yeah, um, I don't know that much about the technology, but I think it's impedance. I think um, the the impulse goes through the body and then back down to the scale, and it different tissues will impede that signal uh, more effectively than others. And I, I think that's the technology, but I'm not a tech guy. Uh, uh, that's about as much as I know. Okay, no, that'll do me. Yeah, that sounds uh, about right. Okay, so um, what about, okay, managing weight? Um, yeah. Again, if you're a little, if you're a bit overweight and it's not unhealthy, it's, it's basically a cosmetic thing you're dealing with, right? Exactly, yes, exactly. Well, I wondered if we should start with the size of the problem. And um, if you just look at, overweight and obesity and that's used that's measuring body mass index or bmi which is a very very poor uh record of 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 the of the issue for the reasons we've just discussed because you know it doesn't the bmi doesn't necessarily reflect uh unhealthy fat storage but for what it's worth and based on bmi about two-thirds of New Zealanders are overweight or obese, with one third being in the obese category. But I would say that a number of those people that are categorised in that way are not unhealthy, you know. And and many people carry a lot of uh, a lot of muscle. So I think if you categorise the All Black team uh, in this way, uh, I would say that not a single one of them is carrying. Um, you know, fat in an unhealthy way, but I think um, they would be categorised as overweight or obese because, um, just because of the fact they have so much muscle mass. So BMI is a poor indicator, but for what it's worth, two thirds of New Zealanders are overweight or obese, one third are obese, and for children, it's one in six uh, children are obese. And I think that's probably the statistic of concern um, that that this problem is happening in children. And so it's not a reflection of, it's really a society's issue and an environmental issue. It's it's a problem with our food environment uh, that has, is leading to childhood obesity. I was looking through some um, old school photos a while back, you know, sort of primers and um, early secondary school, which is really interesting. But one thing I didn't notice very few overweight kids, very yeah. few. And we're going back to um, very early 70s through to the end of the 70s, basically. Yeah, and and our food environment has changed, but our genetics haven't. So it takes 20,000 years for the genes of a population to alter in response to a major environmental uh, change. And for example, in New Zealand, we've only had access to flour and, and sugar, you know, for around 200 years, two to 300 years, you know, so the, the food environment has altered far more quickly than our genetics have. And this exposure to ultra processed foods, which are packed with sugar and refined carbohydrates, that's probably only 70 years in the making so definitely not long enough for our genes to adapt. Yeah, but I think you'd probably see now more overweight kids. Yeah, I I agree with you. It would have been one in each class. And, 
Now you probably, sort of look probably at probably one. If 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 yeah. if one, yeah, one maybe. And now you look at a, a class photo and and you wonder if the skinny kid's unwell. <laughs> Mind you, we used to be out on bikes and running around virtually all the time. There was no sitting down really like there is now. There were no screens. So I guess there's that too. Yeah, I, I and I and I agree with that. We we have to be very careful that that we're not making um judgments unfairly, but I think your comment is, is very valid. I think there is a lot less activity and kids are more likely to be dropped off at school um, in the car and picked up afterwards than to walk or cycle to school for for a, a whole variety of, of reasons. But yeah, there, I think there's less activity and we've also got to think of the impact of devices uh, and maybe kids are running around less at um, playtime and lunchtime than they did in, in our days, Paul. For sure. Okay, so we've got a, a bit of a list we can go through here. I think we've got through the first couple. Um, where do you want to kick off on that, um, on the nutrition part of it? Yeah, so so just to finish off on on that that bit that we've, we've discussed, it's... Um, Fat itself is not necessarily a health problem, but it is associated with things like uh, diabetes and osteoarthritis and and cancer and heart disease, etc. So, you know, um, it's important also not to minimise its impact if it is visceral fat. But nutrition, yeah. So, what you know, this is a, a question I get asked a lot. What what diet should I be on or how should I be eating if I want to lose weight? And, you know, it's a massive question. We could probably um, spend the whole of the show just on this topic. So shall we start with what you should not be eating? I think that's so, a good uh, good start, yeah. You should not be eating sugar. You know, sugar is, is if you want to put on weight, you know, eat sugar. Drink, drink soft drinks. Um, eat sugar-laden cereals, um, snack on Morrow bars and, and, and muesli bars. You know, you know sugar is, is, a, is the main way that you put on weight, I think. And, but it's more than that. It's these ultra-refined carbohydrates that, that are the problem. You know, all these things that are made with flour. And then you add in these unhealthy vegetable oils. And that's the method of putting on weight. And then take it to the next level, it's we're consuming too much carbohydrate. You know, we're eating too much noodles, bread, rice, pasta. All of those um, white and refined carbohydrates, I think, are contributing to this epidemic of being overweight. You know, so if you do want to lose weight, you've got to cut down on the sugar the refined carbohydrates and your carbohydrates in general. So a low-carbohydrate diet, which then focuses on meat, eating more high-quality proteins and more traditional fats, I think is, is the key to losing weight. So low-carbohydrate, healthy-fat um, diets. If you're already well, then the Mediterranean diet, that's, that's going to be a good choice. But if you're wanting to make a change, if you're wanting to lose weight, I'd be going uh, low carb or even keto um, would be my my number one suggestion for weight loss. And in fact, the clinical studies back that up. 
the most effective way of losing weight when various diets have been compared has been low-carb, healthy fat, and keto. Okay, what about um, if you're really trying to lose weight, you know, just sort of like going cold turkey on food for a period of time or periodically, could that help? Yeah, well, well, first of all, eating cold turkey and chicken is a good option because it's high qualities of uh, high, you know, protein and good quality fats. But I understand your question, um, you know, fasting. So this is the way I look at fasting is if you're not hungry, don't eat. You know, don't eat based on the clock, based on the fact that whether you're hungry or not. Now, I know a lot of people are hungry all the time, but if you're not hungry, don't eat. You know, and this sort of brings in this concept of intermittent fasting where people delay their first meal of the day, perhaps to brunch or ideally to lunchtime. And that ideally allows people to eat twice a day um, rather than three to six times a day. And where did this idea that we should be eating three times a day come from? And where did the idea we should be eating six times a day come from, you know, with breakfast, morning smoko, lunch, afternoon smoko, dinner, and then the ginger Supper. nuts and Milo Supper. before you go to yeah. bed. Yeah. You know, where, where did it come from? It certainly did not come from nutrition science. I, I think it came from marketing, the food industry, and advertising. So if you feel comfortable eating twice a day and you're just a little bit hungry in the morning, you know, that's fine. And do you know what? It's actually fine to be hungry occasionally. You know, like it's people I think are really afraid of being hungry. And I and I wonder if, um, you know, people think they will shut down, their brain will shut down or their energy will run out. But in fact, the opposite is true. And I ask you this, which lion catches the gazelle? Is it the hungry lion or the fed lion? You know, and, and it's actually the hungry lion, isn't it? Because the fed lion's lying around in some tree in the sun just digesting. Yeah, no worries. You know, so yeah. we... We don't need to be afraid of being a little bit hungry. Nothing bad will happen. And we don't have to eat prophylactically either. You know, we don't have to eat in case we might get hungry later. You know, experience a little bit of mild hunger. It's it's really a positive feeling. I did a four-day fast about a year and a half ago. And one thing that uh, struck me is I didn't feel that hungry and the further I went on, I mean, I could feel that I, I didn't have any food on board, but the further it went on, kind of the less hungry I felt. Does that make any sense? It, um, it kind of seems counterintuitive um, from a societal point of view, doesn't it? But from a, a science point of view, it, it makes perfect sense because what you've done is you've begun to access stored fat as a fuel. And um, most of us, well, probably all of us have a lot of stored fat available, many, many days or weeks or months of stored fat available. And when we begin to access it, we're not going to feel hungry or as hungry. So that's a food replacement, essentially, an energy replacement that takes the role yeah. of food. Yeah, you know, and, and we were talking at the beginning about the caveman having no fridge and the stored fat uh, being the equivalent of the fridge. The problem is that most of us eating a standard American diet or a Western diet can't access the stored fat. That's that's the problem. When our insulin levels are high, we can't access the stored fat. When you did your, your fast, Paul, 
what you would have done is lowered the insulin and your body would have gone, ah, now I can access the stored fat. And when it can access the stored fat, that's the perfect, cleanest source of, uh, of fuel. And it doesn't take a lot of, doesn't take all the digestive process, you know, the buying the food, cooking the food, preparing the food, a lot of energy is involved and digesting it. All that side's been taken out and all it has to do is enter the cell, go through glycolysis, Krebs cycle and the electron transfer chain and you've got energy. You know, a whole lot of the process has been removed. So I think you will have more energy. Is it natural, just picking up on another point you made, is it natural for people to feel hungry all the time or is that is that something kind of unnatural? What would drive that? Yeah, I, I think it's an unnatural response to the way we're eating. So we're eating sugar and refined carbohydrates, which artificially pushes up our insulin level and it stops us from being able to access stored fat. So the only source of fuel we have is what we're eating. So we feel hungry because we need to eat. Those of us who uh, do intermittent fasting and eat a low-carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet, at any time, we can access stored fat. Therefore, we're not going to feel hungry. So can you see the difference? You know, the ability to access stored fat because your insulin levels are low means that you're not going to feel hungry or as hungry. When you are dependent on eating, you get hangry. Your blood sugar literally drops, and this makes you feel irritable, lacking in energy, unwell, and literally hangry. You know, you've, you've got to eat because you feel like you might fall over. Most of the people in that situation have high insulin and insulin resistance. They need to correct that problem in order not to feel hungry. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? Because I know there's quite a lot of chemistry and biochemistry in that, but did it make yeah, sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Saying? I like yeah. the word hangry. Hangry, that, that's a new one on me. Now that, that makes sense. Uh, basically what you're saying is that the body is using, what, a mix of food intake and stored fat in its energy supplies, not one or the other necessarily. It's It's a mix, is it? In the ideal situation, but people who, some people aren't able to access the stored fat because yep. their insulin is high and they're going to be dependent on eating all the time. They're the, probably the ones that need to eat six times a day. People who Gosh, are experienced, yeah. um, you know, with fasting, um, they'll just access stored fat when it's required. Yeah, okay. All right, um, should we move on to lifestyle medicine? What yeah. what what part does that play? Yeah, so it's to talk about exercise and sleep and stress. So I want to make a comment about exercise. Exercise is totally awesome, as you know, for so many aspects of health, particularly our mental health. It certainly does have a role to play in, in weight management, but exercise alone is a poor strategy for losing weight. So what I'm trying to say, you know that saying, you can't exercise your way out of a poor diet? You know, it's, it's a poor strategy as a standalone measure for, for weight loss. It has to be combined with a healthy diet. So exercise, absolutely, it's wonderful in many, many ways. 
but don't depend on exercise to lose weight. Uh, that's a recipe for exhausting yourself, injuring yourself, and not meeting your your goals. And the other part of this is to emphasize the fact that stress will cause you to wait to gain weight or make it difficult to lose weight because stress produces cortisol, and cortisol um, causes the body to hold on to fat um, and store it for later. It puts the body into this flight or fight response. You know, it's putting the body into, I'm walking out of the cave, there's a saber-toothed tiger, um, or I'm not sure where my next next meal is going to come from. I have to conserve the fat. So lowering stress is important and getting enough sleep because inadequate sleep is a stress on the body and that pushes up cortisol, which tells the body to hold on to fat. How do you lower stress? <laughs> you don't have to answer that one. It might, it might be, I don't know, too big a, of a question, but if if lowering stress is a strategy, you've got to know how to do it, right? Yeah. and, and Given that the stresses of life are always upon you. Yeah, it's a big topic, and, and we might cover that as a, as a standalone topic, but just, you know, something for now, just breathing, just okay. sitting down yeah. quietly and taking four, spending four seconds or a count of four to breathe in and then four seconds to breathe out, just slowing and calming the breathing when you're feeling stressed can be incredibly effective. And it doesn't take time, it doesn't take equipment, it doesn't take any um, specialist psychologists. It's really simple and it, in fact, works. Yeah, actually, you reminded me, I used to do a lot of news reading on on uh, radio stations and you get in there, you know, a few minutes before and you've got papers everywhere and people are dumping stuff on you and there are complicated words and, and it's easy to get a little like, you know, well, not overwhelmed, but a little, a little stressed out. And I found that, just exactly what you described, doing that for about a minute, 45 mm -hmm. seconds a minute, really took the tension down. It really did. Yeah, and this is all about this balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, the fight-or-flight response and the relaxation response, and you calm that fight-or-flight response by managing your breathing. And and it, like you say, it could be as little as 30 to 60 seconds. Doesn't take long, no. Simple, yeah. All right. Um, interesting. Okay. Uh, anything more to say on the lifestyle front? Yeah. So it's nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress management. They're the pillars of lifestyle medicine. And, you know, they really are important. It's because these things are so simple and available. We think that they are weak compared with these expensive medications. And in fact, Many times it's the other way around. These simple, inexpensive, um, uncomplicated things are where the power is and the medications are often plan B. Um, when you talk about sleep, I mean, many people take um, medication to help them sleep. Does that give you the sort of sleep you need? I mean, you could be out to it for eight hours, nine hours, whatever. That works. But is that the kind of sleep? Just curious to know, is that the kind of sleep you need? No, it's a, it's a great question because there's sleep duration and sleep quality. And one of the concerns of um, sleeping with a sleeping tablet is that the sleep quality may not be as high. 
So you might be asleep for six to eight hours, but only getting half the quality of sleep. Okay. All right. So maintaining that sort of lifestyle medicine approach, uh, I guess there are kind of new ways of doing that. There are people who can help you do that, coach you into that. Um, and um, I guess you, you go to gyms and all that sort of stuff. So what's to integrate what we've already talked about with that, what's the best way to go? Yeah, it's, so your question's a great one, Paul. It's, it's, it's around this idea that having the understanding, so knowing what you should be eating and how you should be exercising is one thing, but putting it into practice is, is another thing. And, and food is complicated and there is an addictive element to food and food addiction, not suggesting that that's the case for, for everyone, but for some people who are struggling to lose weight, food addiction is an issue. And in some ways it's, it's much more difficult or much more yeah, difficult than other addictions because with smoking and alcohol, you don't have to drink alcohol and you don't have to smoke whereas you do have to eat, you know, so in many ways, a food addiction is more difficult. And so in many cases, it requires a little bit of additional help. And that's where a health coach, or a nutritionist, or or even a psychologist or counsellor who's interested in this topic is useful, because putting the behavioural change in place, and maintaining it uh, can be a challenge for many. So when I'm, I'm very, very lucky in my clinic, I have nutritionists and health coaches and counsellors and psychologists as part of the team. So, so when we identify that food addiction is part of the issue, um, I have that team of people to help me. Um, but, you know, recognise that behavioural change is not easy because if it was, we would have all done it by now. You know, and, and that might not be food. It could be any one of the topics we discuss. If it was easy, we would have all done it. You know, and clearly we haven't all made the behavioural changes that we need to make, uh, probably you and I included, you know, and that's where the role of an expert in behavioural change may come in. When you break the news, uh, well, I don't know how you do this, but you tell someone, okay, I think you're addicted to food. It's an addiction. How, how do they take it? Or do they already kind of know? Yeah, Um yeah, it, it's we use the coach approach. So we're on the client's agenda. We would we would ask questions that delve a little bit deeper with a, an inquisitive mind. You know, not not coming from a judgmental place, but but coming from an inquiring mind. I imagine it's a lot of the skills that you've learned in in your role, Paul. You know, rather than you know jumping in there with the um, with the challenging one, sometimes you you dig a little bit deeper with an inquiring mind, and that's what we tend to do. And we tend to find if there is a food addiction element, just just being inquisitive, interested, and non judgmental will pull that information out. Right. Okay. Okay. So um, we've been through quite a few points there. Anything more to um, summarise before we end the chat for this week? Yeah, well, I think we might leave it there, but we could probably do a second, um, a, a, a chapter two on this because we could go on and talk about the hormones that are involved in 
weight management. And there's actually some medications that may have a role for some. So um, would you like to do a, a part two next week? Yeah, why not? Let's do that. And no, if okay. anyone has any questions in the meantime, maybe they could fire them through. We may or may not have time for them, but let's see what um, what happens. I mean, we, all, we always get uh, texts and emails, so let's see what happens there as well. Yeah, so, so as a summary, it's if you are overweight, you're not necessarily unhealthy. Um, look for that visceral fat and the tape measure around the tummy is a good uh, indicator if you don't have my flash scales. Um, and basically, it's whole food nutrition, it's it's movement, it's managing stress, um, and it's um, sleeping well. And I think the, the best medicine for weight loss is the low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet in combination with some form of fasting. And it's quite an experience doing a fast, a long fast. It is quite an interesting thing to do. You know, yeah. um, especially after about day, you know, two and a half, three. Um, yeah. yeah, we should probably cover fasting as a standalone topic. But just for our listeners, a fast also means delaying breakfast from breakfast time to morning smoko. That that also, by definition, is a fast. So, okay. you know, you, yeah. you don't, We not everyone might have your um your conviction and determination to go for four days, Paul. So, you know, four hours, delaying breakfast by four hours, that's also fasting. That's totally doable. Totally doable. All right, uh, Dr. Glenn Davies, Health Hacks, thanks for being with us again. And uh, let's go part two on this next Monday. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.